If you don't have the coffee you want yet, go ahead and get it. We're going to start in just about a minute. Okay, great. Let's get started. That means you, Dan. <laughs> All right. Okay. To start off with, um, some of you may not have uh, may not have bought the the books for the class yet, which is fine, but some of you maybe are thinking, boy, I really would like to have a copy of uh, that Kelly book because um, I really like Junius' half of the class more than Mark's, and that's the one he seems to use. Um, but, you know, my family's on a budget, tough times. What can I do? Uh, well, we happen to have a copy here, which is available for someone who just needs a little extra help. Um, so if anyone wants to use this, um, just come grab it uh, discreetly. and. Um, only one of you, so no stampeding, please. Okay, um, today we're going to begin um, our theological journey proper. So this is going to be um, a little weird. What we're talking about today is Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism is this thing that you've probably heard about and probably have heard the various contemporary movements um, criticized as being Gnostic and perhaps have not known exactly what that was intended to mean. Um, it's a term that gets used very loosely today in a lot of different ways um, to the point that some people suspect that it doesn't actually mean anything because people, you know, when you don't know how a word is supposed to be used, you, most of us don't go look it up. We just try to listen to the various contexts in which we hear it and figure out from context what it means. But if the people we're listening to don't really know what it means either, then uh, you sort of have a telephone-like chain of uh, misunderstanding as to what the word is supposed to mean. So a lot of that has happened with Gnosticism. It's the typical criticism. If you think something is unchristian and you're not sure exactly why, you just say that it's Gnostic, and then everyone is like, well, I don't know what that means, but I know it's really bad. <laughs> so, yeah, we're not going to go that way. Um, well, it's not actually that arcane, um, except when it is, because it's, it's, we do know exactly what it is, um, so it's not this big secret mystery, except that the whole point of Gnosticism is that there's this big secret mystery. So we're going to talk about what the mystery is. Um, we're not going to go too deep into it because it's really complicated, but just what are the sort of characteristics of Gnostic systems that, when, when is something rightly called Gnostic historically, and when is it not? And what was the specific nature of the challenge that the church was facing in the early centuries that 
caused so much response because there was a major reaction against Gnosticism and Christianity. It's the first really big um, challenge that Christianity had to deal with. Um, Gnosticism is not unique to Christianity. It was around before Christianity. It is a blend of certain types of Greek philosophy and certain types of religious thought. Um, so there's a Jewish Gnosticism and then there are various mystery religions in ancient Greece that, w that are also using some of the same principles. Um, a lot of the philosophies we talked about last week are very friendly to Gnosticism. Um, certain interpretations of Platonism especially are very friendly to Gnosticism. Um, Plato did very well in comparison to Christianity, so you can see why if you have Christianity on the one side and Plato on the other side, and they seem to fit very well together, and then even further away from Platonism, you have Gnosticism, and they seem to fit well together, you can kind of say, well, then all of these things should really go well together. So some people were really misled by it. Um, within Christianity, there's this, this legend that Gnosticism was actually based on the teachings of Simon Magus in Acts. Um, we have no idea, but it's kind of fun to think that, so I'll mention it. Okay, so what is Gnosticism? It comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And so the most fundamental tenet of Gnosticism is that they have this, they believe they have access to this hidden, secret knowledge. Okay, it's information that was passed down from the apostles that was the kind of secret in knowledge that they had because they lived with Jesus. Not the stuff they put in the Gospels. That's the basic stuff. But if you wanted to really get serious about Christianity, then the, the apostles would teach the more mature folks this specialized teaching, and the Gnostics believed that they were the inheritors of this specialized teaching. It was kept secret because you didn't want to throw your pearls before swine, and so you, the only way you would have access to it is by learning it from another Gnostic teacher. Okay, so you have to come into this oral tradition, which is going to uh, deliver this special secret knowledge to you. Now, salvation only really comes through knowledge, and it's particularly through the unique blend of Christian secret knowledge that the Gnostic is selling. So he'll say, oh, you've heard the preaching of Paul, and you've read the Gospels, and you believe on Christ. That's great. You're a great immature Christian. You're primed for salvation now, but if you really want to receive God's blessings in your life, then you need to hear what I've got to tell you. Thank God I came across your path, because I have the information you need to get you going. It's a great pyramid scheme. Um, the other really big side of Gnosticism has to do with an emphasis of the spiritual over the physical. Okay? The true man, who we most truly are, is spirit, and our most fundamental longing is to return to the world of spirit. Okay? So therefore, they believed that matter was evil, and that matter could not be the work of the Most High God. Right? In the same way that um, the church has often said, well, we don't want to say that God is, the, is responsible for sin, that's, that's man or that's Satan or that's something else. Well, the Gnostics said, well, matter is the sin principle, matter is evil, so we don't, that can't be the work of God. So that's another principle that is counter to God, which has to be overcome. So in as much as we're in our bodies, you know, really who we are, who God created us to be, is our spirits. And these bodies are this sin that's dragging us down, and we need to be freed from those so that we can return to being who we were meant to be, who we most truly are underneath. Um, a funny, a funny um, upshot of this is that often Gnosticism permitted a great deal of physical licentiousness. Um, it, it allowed great indulgence in physical pleasures because matter didn't really matter at the end of the day. Um, it was you know, something bad and evil, but it couldn't touch spirit because spirit was such a, a greater, more noble nature. And so the things you did with your body didn't really make any difference to your spirit. Um, you, you were going to free yourself from your body at some point anyway, and all the things you did in your body would stay behind when you did that, and your pure spirit, purified through knowledge, would ascend to the heavenly places. Um, obviously not something that we want to be teaching as Christians. So, Gnosticism is characterized by these really complex cosmological schemas. Now, if you read the Kelly material for this week, um, you will have seen one such uh, schema, right? It talks about 
all the various eons and the ways in which they emanated from the, the original one, and then the one came became three, and then the three became a a um, a, a, uh, a pentad, and then became a decad, and a dodecad, and then the, uh, there's like 30 gods total, and they make the pleroma, and you feel like you need a flowchart or a PowerPoint presentation or something to really follow it. Um, please don't try to follow it. It's not worth your time. Um, that's the ancient aspect of Gnosticism. When someone says something is Gnostic today, it, that's an aspect that isn't represented in contemporary thought. So if you don't grasp the subtleties of the Pleroma, that's cool. Okay, don't worry about it. But that's the kind of thing that they would do, is they would have these very, very complex schemas. What's going on there? A couple of things. One is, you remember your, your ancient Greek mythology, right? There's a God for everything. And Augustine makes fun of the, the Romans for this, because by Augustine's time, they were saying, actually, you know, there are all these different gods, but all the gods of the Olympian pantheon are just aspects of Zeus. So there's really just one god, just Zeus, but then when it's Zeus who's in charge of, you know, the hearth, we call him Hera. When it's Zeus who's in charge of childbirth, we call him this. Um, so, so that tendency to make sure that you aren't dishonoring God by worshiping God under all of his aspects is part of what underlies the Gnostic desire to have lots and lots of gods. Um, but part of it is, what good is secret knowledge if it's not really, really hard? Right? What benefit do you have? How cool are you if your secret knowledge is, by the way, God loves you? Right? That's, I mean, that's great, but somebody might accidentally discover that. And so within what's your secret knowledge going to be? How is that worthy of being the hidden knowledge that God has been wanting to share but has been saving for the select few? So, but if your secret knowledge is this complex flowchart of all these different genealogical relations between the gods and the ways in which, you know, complex interpretations of scripture that you could never really come up with if you sat in a room by yourself, right? The more complicated you make it, the more cool your knowledge is. The more it seems like you're really getting something really special. And also the, the more unlikely it is that somebody's going to randomly stumble upon your knowledge, which is a major criterion, because otherwise it wouldn't be... Look, if God wants to keep a secret, God is able to keep a secret, right? So if anyone can just stumble upon the knowledge you have, then you haven't yet gotten to the secret, hidden, difficult knowledge of God. Right? So the sense, this idea of a plain sense of Scripture is polar opposite from what the Gnostics would think. Scripture is hard, they say. Scripture is really difficult. And you need us to tell you how to read it, because you would never figure it out on your own. Thank God the Holy Spirit came down and told us, so now we can share that information with you. Yeah. Um, so their, their, their schemas are always really complex. Um, and um, and the, the emphasis, again, is that only by knowing this knowledge, only by really understanding this schema and what it means, can you really attain salvation. Right. right action follows from right knowledge, and you can't do that if you don't understand everything exactly as they're telling you it is. Lastly, Gnostics devalue history. This is linked with their devaluing of flesh, of matter, of physical realities, right? Because history takes place in the physical world. It's the story of the progression of physical things. Spirit doesn't have a history in the same way, right? So what they can look at history as a story of failure. It's just, it's just a listing of all the ways in which things have gone bad. Right? And so it's something that has to be overcome. When we leave these crappy bodies behind and ascend to our pure spiritual form, all of this whole history nonsense is going to be gotten, it's going to be gotten over with. And we're going to go back to the pure atemporality of the Paroma. Right? Um, so that's a, that's a major aspect of their thought, too. So... How is it like Christianity, and how is it different from Christianity? What's good about it, and what's bad about it? Well, what's good about it, or at least similar to things that we would say, is that we do say that saving knowledge comes through Christ alone. There's a type of knowledge that you have to have in order to be saved. If you don't know that Jesus is God, you're not there yet. Okay? So we kind of agree that there's, you know, knowledge plays an important part in the salvific role. It's not like Judaism where you just do the law perform the works, and that counts you as being a Jew. It doesn't, in the eyes of the God of the Jews, count you as being righteous, but for cultural Judaism, that's enough to count. Christianity says, no, there's this element of knowledge and belief. There's a layer of knowledge and belief that goes on top of that. And we Christians also believe that the material world is not what is ultimately meaningful. 
Now we're going to come back to that and talk about what we, what the orthodox position on the material world actually is, because we don't join the Gnostics in saying, therefore it doesn't matter, or therefore it's evil. That's not where we go with it. But at the end of the day, the most important stuff is not the stuff that happens to and in your body. It's the stuff that happens in your spirit. Well, problems. A, Gnosticism lacks the ability to affirm with God that creation is good. When God says in Genesis, he looks at everything to Jesus and says, it is good, Gnosticism can't say that. Because Gnosticism is looking and saying, okay, that's matter, that's bad, you know, plants, bad, animals, bad, fish, bad, man, part bad, part good. So, not too bad there, God, you, had, you were going in the right direction there, but you still had that whole body thing going on, so, you know, B minus, maybe, right. God seems to give creation an A plus in Genesis. Gnosticism can't affirm that grade. Um, also, the devaluing of history coupled with the denigration of matter means that Gnosticism is not able to see the incarnation as the chief end of God for the salvation of men's souls. Because the incarnation is two things. It's God's coming in flesh, in matter, which Gnosticism thinks is the height of scandal, because God and matter can have nothing to do with one another. Matter is too evil and God is too good. But also the incarnation is God coming into history. It's the redeeming of history. And Gnosticism can't go there either, because history is just a story of failure. There is no redemption for history conceptually possible in Gnosticism. And so that's another way in which it differs from uh, Orthodox Christianity. What are your thoughts? Yes? I don't understand. If matter is evil, mm -hmm. where did it come from? I and mean, God made matter? Made it evil? No, God did not make matter. Yeah, that's right. So, so that, that's, part of the, that's part of the desire of having the... When you have all these emanations from God, they're kind of like lesser gods and demigods. So there's the Most High God, which they say you call him the Most High God because there are other gods and he's the Most Highest one, right? And that's what we, would, that's what we understand to be God normally. And then they would say that underneath that you have... God's wisdom is another God, and God's goodness is another God, and then the Word is another God, and then, and so this goes on and on. One of those lesser gods created matter. And actually, the way it actually works out is that one of these gods, or goddesses, um, kind of had a little fling, and wandered away from the, from the fullness of the divinity. You could think if one of the Greek gods sort of left Olympus and went rebel for a while, and out of her sufferings, matter was created. So they account for matter as coming from a source which ultimately everything that happens has to be traced back to God in some way because there's nothing that is without God. But they're saying there are these impulses that went out from God that actually become other gods and then they can do stuff. And because they're not as cool as the most high God, it's okay for them to do bad stuff. And so all the bad stuff comes from lower down in the pantheon. Yeah, it's, it's awful, isn't it? Yeah. It's so disappointing. <laughs> No, not necessarily. It's, let's make a distinction between two different kinds of dualism. There's a dualism which says that there's a principle of enmity in the universe. And, there's a, and this dualism typically sets matter against spirit. Gnosticism is dualistic in that way, in that it says that matter and, and flesh are at war, I mean, flesh and spirit are at war with one another. Dualism in the proper sense is to say that there are actually two original principles. One principle which is the source of the good, and one principle which is the source of the evil. So it's an eternal strife that's always been going on, as opposed to a strife that is temporal. Um, Gnosticism is not dualistic in that way. Gnosticism's strife is temporal. Only once matter is created does a conflict arise between matter and spirit. Right? There's another dualism called Manichaeanism, which says that there's the creator God, and then there's Satan, and they're both eternal and of comparable power, and they've been at war for all eternity. And Gnosticism is not dualistic in that way. So ultimately everything's got to be traced back to God somehow. It's not, God's not going to be responsible for everything. It's not his fault. But there's one original principle, and only because that principle gets split up into a lot of other ones do you then have the possibility of conflict later on. What did they actually believe about Jesus? Was he not physical? Is that... That's correct. Most Gnostic interpretations deny that Jesus actually had a body. He, it, it, you know, they go into some sort of 
idea that he's, he appears to have a body, you know, the Son of Man appearing in flesh, which means he's not actually there, he just looks like he is. Um, that's, that's a lot of their, their solution to that, right? Because he couldn't, his, his, his goal is to undo the damage of there being flesh at all. And so he is to effect a reconciliation, but that reconciliation is not going to be um, reconciling matter to spirit, it's going to be releasing spirit from matter. So for him to take on matter wouldn't make any sense, right? Because that's counterproductive to the mission. Well, it depends on how you interpret it. I mean, not technically, because every one of the eons is a god. Um, so they, they're, they're what you would call henotheists, which is to say that they, have, they believe in the plurality of gods, but they believe one god is clearly in charge and of greater dignity than the others. Yeah, yeah. And that's where the other sense of supreme and most high comes from, is that, well, those are relative terms, and you wouldn't say that if there weren't other gods for them to be higher than, so they would argue. Yeah. Where do they take the Old Testament writings then? The Old, the Old Testament writings are, um, they love the Old Testament. Oh, they love the Old Testament. Because they're going to they're gonna go allegorical on the Old Testament until the cows come home. So all this stuff about, here is your, the Lord your God, the Lord is one God, they're going to they're gonna change that around. And they're going to say one, with a capital O, is the name of the Most High God. And so he's not, he's not, he's not telling you that he's the only one. He's telling you that his name is one. Oh, you silly Christians, good thing we came along with our secret knowledge because you would have gotten this wrong. Thank goodness we've got the information you need. Because, yeah, if you read it that you know, I could see how you would have read it to think that there's only one God, but we know better. Right. And, and similarly. It, it sounds like they're trying to <coughs> retrace the steps of Jesus, if you will, mm. and wanting to de-incarnate mm -hmm. their bodies and their knowledge to yeah, that's right. It's, that's right. There's a sense in which there's there's always a there's a circular movement in the incarnation, as we'll talk about when we talk about the main Christian response to Gnosticism. Um, but always, no matter how you explain it, there's always this sense of at the very least Christ comes down from heaven to become man, and then he goes back up. So if you look at where Christ started and where he ends up, you end up with a going down and a coming back up. And that motion is an important one in Christianity, and we've always interpreted that. Something about this whole thing, if we were going to go from here to here, then Christ had to come down here first. So the going down enables the coming back up, right? And that's the scriptural thing, that he, he comes down, and then he ascends, leading captives in his train. That's us, right? Brings us along back with him. What the Gnostics want to do is they want to say Christ comes down, and then rather than a completing complementary motion, they want to then say we go back the way that Christ came, Right? So he doesn't come down so that through our experience we can come to salvation. He comes down to negate our experience and take us back the way he came to salvation. Right? So rather than one of these, you get... Whoosh, whoosh. It's, a less, it's a less cool shape. <laughs> yes, yes you may. <laughs> okay, so what did we do about it? Um, Irenaeus, uh, who flourished in 180 AD, um, was a disciple of Polycarp, whom um, Mark mentioned last week. You can see the quote from Polycarp on last week's handout. Polycarp was said to be a disciple of John, one of the Johns, either the John who's responsible for the Gospel, the John who's responsible for the Epistles, maybe those are the same dude. We don't really know what's going on. A lot of guys named John. But he's said to be the disciple of one of the Apostles, right? And so Irenaeus is like a grand disciple. <laughs> Of an, of an apostle. Um, he was the bishop of what is, was to become Lyon in France. France, um, And he was one of the major folks who sort of tried to dis expose the, the, the problems of Gnosticism. A lot of what we know about Gnosticism is sec through secondary means, through Irenaeus' descriptions of what the Gnostics believe, through Tertullian, another church father's description of what the Gnostics believe. We have some fragments, and we've discovered more fragments in the 20th century, but for most of the church's history, our primary knowledge of Gnosticism came through um, the folks who were going to be refuting it, and they expounded it in great detail, partly to show that they really understood what they were arguing against, um, and partly because the exposition they felt was necessary to show its stupidity. They thought, look, if I just tell you what they think, you're going to know this is dumb. Um, he had great, great faith in his parishioners. Um, 
So a lot of his theology is developed in conversation with Gnosticism, and a lot of it is an attempt to answer some of the specific challenges to Christianity that Gnosticism represents. So I'm going to talk about I'm going to talk about him in two stages. One is talking about the positive aspects of his theology that were specifically intended to correct Gnostic excesses. And then I'm going to talk about the parts of his theology that don't seem to have been developed polemically against Gnosticism, but are just other parts of his expressing his view. Um, he's very, very insistent that what he's telling you is based upon the rule of faith, which is, uh, which is what they use for catechesis and for, for teaching new Christians in his diocese, with his, you know, in all of his churches, that this rule of faith is the same thing that, that Christians have believed, all Christians everywhere have always believed, from Christ to his day. So here he's, he's making the claim that there is a Catholic Christianity, that there is a Christianity that all Christians everywhere and every time have always believed in. And he's going to appeal to that to help refute the Nazi charge. Okay. So the first point of this is an, this idea called recapitulation. Okay? This is a corrective to the Gnostic hatred of history. He's going to say, look, you guys say history is worthless and it's the story of failure and blah, blah, blah. But actually, history is the whole point of the incarnation. It's the whole point of creation. Okay? Christ isn't just taking on our human nature in the sense that he's taking on a human soul and a human body. He's also taking on our entire story, which means he's taking on the temptation in the garden. He's taking on the flood. He's taking on the wandering through the wilderness. He's taking on the establishment of the kingdom of Israel. He's taking on God's history of dialogue and God's covenant with his people. All of that is being incarnated in Christ. It's more than just flesh. It's a story that Christ is going to relive. So what you see then is Christ goes back through salvation history and is reliving all those things that the Israelites lived. But he's getting it right where they got it wrong. Okay? So he's going back and making all the decisions we were supposed to make the first time. Um, he's not just living a spotless human life. He's living the archetypal spotless human life, which will then get applied to each one of us. Okay? He's called the second Adam, not just because... As Paul says, through one man came death, so through one man comes life. But because he's actually making the choice that Adam was supposed to make. And then he's going through and living out and making all the other choices Adam would have been able to make had he not made that first one wrong. Um, so at the heart of this, and one of, his, one of his presuppositions for this, he believes that humanity was created immature by God in the Garden of Eden. And we were intentionally in a childlike state of innocence and that God intended for us to develop through relationship with him to maturity. So if we hadn't sinned, there still would have been a history, there still would have been a story, because we still had to grow up. Right. So history isn't just the introduction of conflict into man's relationship with God. History is God's training us up. So for Irenaeus, if you look back on salvation history, what you see is God educating and training this stupid child, which is us. Right. We're like the dull boy. Just, we just, we're slow, we don't get it, you know, we don't pay attention, we don't do our homework. Teacher's talking, we're talking over the teacher, right? Even through sin, God didn't abandon the project of bringing humanity to maturity. It just had to look differently, right? But you still see humanity growing to maturity. So Christ arrives at a pivotal point in humanity's growth as, as a person, right? And then Christ affects our final move to maturity. Okay. Next idea, revelation is primarily contained in the scriptures and everything else is to be tested against it. Okay? The Gnostics are coming up with this, we've got this secret knowledge. The apostles didn't put it in the scripture because then it would be misused. So if you want to know it, you've got to come to us. We've got the oral tradition and that's what's going to tell you what's real. Irenaeus does not deny an oral tradition. He uses this oral tradition all the time in arguing against the Gnostics. Part of the problem is because part of what's at stake is how to interpret the scriptures. So he's not saying sola scriptura because sola scriptura wouldn't work in this argument. The Gnostics are like, we are using the scriptures, we're going to tell you how to read it. And Irenaeus is like, that's stupid, You're, that's a dumb reading. Right. So he's going to say that there is a, a, an oral tradition which supplements the scriptures, 
but it's not private. It's not a secret. It's public. Everybody knows what it is. It's been out there from the beginning. You can ask any Christian. You can ask half the pagans, right? You can ask plenty, and they can tell you what, the, what it is, what it is that we believe, what was handed on that hasn't been written down, okay? So anything that you say is going to have to be tested against the scriptures to see if it's true. And any interpretation of the scriptures is going to have to accord with what Christians have always believed everywhere. The oral tradition, the rule of faith, is primarily contained in liturgical documents, what kinds of things do we say in prayer when we get together to worship as a community? What kinds of things do we say in quasi-credal formulations? Right. These things he believes everyone knows. They're not a secret. You can ask anybody. Um, he, has, he believes that even non-Christians know what these things are. And so the Gnostics are wrong, not in appealing to something beyond the scriptures, but in appealing to something that is secret and turns out ultimately to be a contradiction with the scriptures of what Christians have always thought. The moment you step up and say, you know, you, 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 it's great, you've been going to church in Lyon for a long time and listening to Irenaeus preach, um, good preacher, everything he says is, is pretty good, but there's this other side of it, this other aspect of it that he's not telling you, and you would never have gotten it if someone like me hadn't come to tell you. That's where it breaks. The gospel is open and available to everyone. You don't need a special, specially trained secret teacher to come and open it up to you. Okay. Um, it's happened sometimes in, in some churches some pastors use Greek like the Gnostics use knowledge right? to say oh well if you understood the Greek you'd see that I'm right if you're right you should be able to explain it to us in English right? the Bible is highly translatable yes there are things you can see in the Greek text that you wouldn't see in the English text but not secrets right? it, 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 it makes it easier for you to see what's there but it doesn't make you see new stuff that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise um, so, the, how, do, how do they know that this oral tradition that they're using at Lyon is good? How do they establish that? How do we know that it's apostolic? apostolic? The apostolicity of the tradition is guaranteed by the unbroken succession of bishops going back to the apostles. Okay? The bishops are the overseers for the, a particular area of the church. The apostles were the first overseers for these things. And so when the apostles laid hands on someone to be a successor, that person preserves the apostolic teaching. And so because, because Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, Irenaeus' teaching is apostolic. That's his claim. This is going to be a major point in Catholic theology through the ages, and this is the first time you really see it expressed in 180. Also, it's guaranteed by the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church. The Holy Spirit will not allow the church to go into error. Not into serious error, anyway. Okay, lastly, against the Gnostics, um, over and against the multiplication of God into aeons and pleromas, Irenaeus emphasizes the unity of God. Irenaeus goes back to that Shema scripture in Deuteronomy 6.4 and says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. He says, This is the foundation of all Christian belief. Our rule of faith is going to be explicated starting from here. And so it's a major, major theme in Irenaeus' writing in a way that it hasn't been in the writings of others before. Because suddenly he's facing... A, a construal of this which denies monotheism. Okay. Questions about the anti-Gnostic Irenaeus? Yeah? A little bit off, uh, perhaps, when all this was happening, was there all those new beliefs, was there any attempt to go to the new stuff and then Forget the Old Testament teachings. You know, lots of times you get something new and you want to go with that. Uh, I've talked to a lot of people many years ago who say, "Well, why read the Old Testament? The New Testament's Jesus and yeah. Thomas." Yeah, that was that was a big problem. The there was there was a lot of that going on, and Mark's going to talk about some of that next week, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, there was a whole movement which we've come to call replacement theology, which is to say the New Testament replaces the Old, so you don't have to read the Old anymore. The Old is it was, it was scripture, it was God-given for its time, but the New Testament supersedes it. And so now it's just completely outdated. And, you know, there's an argument to be made there. I mean, how many of you who have children upon the birth of your first child went and sacrificed turtle doves at the temple? Anyone? Turtle dove sacrifices in here? No? <laughs> when I first became a Christian, this was a big deal to me. I, was, I had this friend who was telling me about how I needed to read the Bible and everything. And so I started reading 
Bill of the Old Testament, right? And I get through Genesis, no problem, good to go. Then I get to the law, and I read that. I call my friend up, and I was like, Kevin, this is crazy. Why don't we do this anymore? Everyone's a sinner. I don't know anyone who's ever sacrificed a turtle dove. Like, what's going on? And he's like, maybe you should read Galatians and then come back to the Old Testament later. <laughs> so, so, yes, the church is struggling with that, and we'll, we'll talk about that next week, what that looked like and what some of the response was. But, and then and for the Gnostics, you know, Gnostics could go either way in this issue. They could say, yeah, let's just dump the Old Testament and go with the New. More often what they did was they said, let's, reinterpret the Old Testament in such a way that it's a radically different book anyway, which is what they were doing with the New Testament, and then we won't really have an issue. So both options were available. Yeah. Other thoughts? Yeah, nope, yeah, question. I think the point you made about the ethical succession, it's interesting you're explaining that. Um, of course, part of the debate, Reformation debate, was is Irenaeus arguing for succession of office, mm-hmm. Jesus would be laying on hands, or succession of persons. Right. Um, but what was totally not, I mean, what, what was today, what is today often viewed as such a uh, repressive idea, the idea of ordination, the idea of a succession of ministry, mm-hmm. was for them, like I think you make a great point, it was really the way in which they, they are salvaging yeah, it was it was a it was a safe tower they could flee into. It was really good news. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's a that's a great point you're making, um, which is to say something that something that Preston says in sermons a lot, and that you know we do in our small groups and things to talk about how is this particular point of the scripture good news for our world. It's challenging us to understand how this is not only true, but how the truth of it therefore is good news. I think we could apply that same principle to the theologians we're studying in this, in this class. Is to say, how is what they're saying good news for the church in their time? Because the church is at war. I mean, Mark told you about the physical side of that war, and these persecutions were happening. Irenaeus' successor, I mean, his predecessor in Lyon, the bishop before him, was martyred. And that's how he came into office. Um, and <laughs> so, you know, he's having to deal with all the stuff that Mark was talking about. Um, but also, there's an intellectual war going on. Because everyone wants to throw up and say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, and here's what I think. And the, the church had to say, actually, you're not a Christian. <laughs> we have trouble saying this today, right? But how many times have you met someone with a crazy idea, and they're confusing people, and you think to yourself, why do they even bother calling themselves a Christian? Why don't they just call themselves something else, right? From the very beginning, the church has been dealing with this. And so a challenge we could set ourselves is to see how is the particular theological position of the particular theologian we're studying good news for a church that's facing the particular challenge that his church was facing. Because there's always an answer to that. That's always an important answer. It always shows you exactly what was at stake in the theological discussion. Okay, let's talk about the, the rest of Irenaeus. And, you know, what, 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 did, what, was, what were the parts of his thought that were not developed as in response to this great challenge. Um, okay, here's a really important idea that is going to come back for us uh, later on. He made a distinction between two aspects of God's being, with the imminent and the economic. Okay, imminent, not imminent, but immanent. Um, it means who God is in himself, considered apart from anything God's accomplished. It has to do with who God is as opposed to what God does. Economy, or economia, activity, has to do with God's works. It says who God is in his actions, whether that be in creating, redeeming, sanctifying. It says that when God acts, he is this sort of actor. Okay, so do you see the distinction there? On the one hand, it's who is God, period. And the answer to that might be, you know, he's good, he's just, he's all-powerful, he's all-wise. And then the other is, who is God when he goes to do stuff. And the answer to that might be that he's merciful, he is jealous, he's just, you know, something's going to cross over and forth. He's still going to be good and wise and all that, right? The idea is that he's not going to be something in the economy that he's not in his person. But there's a logical distinction to be made between things that God just is, and it's just always eternally the way he is, and things that come about because he's now in relationship and he's now in activity, right? God before creation didn't need to be merciful. He was always the type of God who, given creation, would be merciful. But he didn't need to actually show mercy, because he didn't need mercy, and he was all there was. 
So there's no, no one to show mercy on. But in creation, suddenly there's this new thing that comes, this new way for God to act, which is to start showing mostly mercy on bad children. Right? This is not a temporal, this is not a change in God, first of all. Irenaeus is not arguing against immutability. God doesn't change. But rather, something comes into expression in God that was always there, but that just wasn't noticeable before because there wasn't an opportunity. Okay. It's an important distinction. It may seem like we're splitting hairs right now. If you think this is splitting hairs, just you wait. <laughs> <laughs> How can something be three and one at the same time? <laughs> Settle in. <laughs> okay, so at this point in time, speaking about three and one, Trinitarian formulas were not that advanced. Okay, Trinitarian formulas at this time were basically, okay, so we worship one God. And by the way, the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. That's about as far as the Trinitarian conversation had gone at that point. Maybe that's about as far as a lot of us have gone, too, and maybe we're happy leaving it there. But at some point, and you know you've done this, at some point you think, what does that mean? <laughs> and, and we're right at the beginning of that question arising. Um, so Irenaeus moves the discussion forward a little bit from what I just described. His claim is that whatever is begotten of God is God. Okay? Anything that comes from God, in the sense of begetting, as opposed to the sense of creation, is God. Okay? So that, um, that becomes a direct affirmation of the divinity of Christ, basing Christ's divinity not just now on Christ's own claims, but on something about the nature of God. And it becomes an indirect affirmation of the divinity of the Holy Spirit. Because at this point in time, it is not yet, you know, the Holy Spirit's relationship to God the Father is not really that specific at this point. But he certainly comes from Christ. And Christ comes from the Father. The Father is God. Whatever comes from God is God. So Christ is God. But the Holy Spirit comes from Christ, and Christ is God. So then the Holy Spirit is God. You see this sort of a double chain, right? Um, that's, a, that's new. And that's big. Because so far we hadn't gotten that far in discussing eternity yet. Now, given his emphasis on the unity of the Godhead, which you find on nearly every page of text, the power that this idea of whatever comes from God is God would have for the later discussion is just enormous. Right? Now it's understood that all discussions of distinctions of the persons of the Trinity are going to have to unfold within a prior affirmation of unity. That you start from, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then you talk about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all God. Right? So that unity is what protects the Trinity, rather than the other way around, which would have led to a very different development of the doctrine. Now, it's important to note here how the Trinity is being portrayed. What we're not seeing here is three equal persons in the Trinity, what we would ultimately come to in Christianity. What we're seeing at this early stage is one person in the unity of his own word and spirit. The Son and the Holy Spirit are considered to be different than the Father, but not yet persons. There's still the Father and his word, the Father and his spirit, these three, one God. But he can't yet say these three persons. Okay, so him, holy, 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 Irenaeus would, would be like, I'm not sure what you mean by that. What is this? God and three persons, blessed Trinity. He's like, what do you mean three persons? It's one person, and then his word, you know, is your word different than who you are? No, but if your word were, if you were God, your word would be God. That's the kind of trinity we're talking about. A little less problematic philosophically, but not quite as robust as we want theologically either. Okay, this has led to the following distinction. Going back to that economic imminent thing that we talked about a moment ago. This, you then have the possibility of talking about an, an imminent trinity versus an economic trinity. Okay? In an imminent trinity, God is eternally three persons in one divine essence. This, this language is anachronistic. Irenaeus couldn't say three persons, but he would get the idea. What we traditionally think of as a doctrine of the trinity. Okay? So if your understanding of trinity is that from all eternity, before God decided to create, not, there's no before in God, but just go with the language. Before God decided to create, there was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If that's what you think of the Trinity, A, good job, you're Orthodox. B, that is called the imminent Trinity. 
Okay? The economic trinity, God is eternally one, but in working out his plan, he has appeared in three persons. Okay? Accordingly, the persons are eternal only to the extent that the divine activity is eternal. That's an important distinction. A lot of people hear economic trinity and think, oh no, that means that Jesus came into existence at the moment of creation. And before that, there was no Jesus. That's not, they're a little more nuanced than that. Heretics are smart. Right? And even heterodox Christians are smart. They're very subtle in their position. God doesn't live in time. God's activity is eternal. God's decision to create was from all eternity. From the moment of that decision, which always was, there was a son. So it's not like there's ever a time before Jesus and the Holy Spirit would have existed under an economic Trinitarian view. But logically speaking, they're secondary to the Father. They really only came about because God always purposed to create. Had God's purpose been different, God would not have turned out to be Trinity. And that's where it's heterodox, because it's saying the Trinity is not a statement about who God is. It's a statement about some way that God acts, okay? which is a big problem for us. Still today. Um, so this heretical view is often applied to Irenaeus, but it's unfair. Because Irenaeus clearly kept the mystery of the eternal trinity in view, even though he speaks very often in economic terms. He says a lot of things that might make you think that he believes in an economic trinity. But he says enough things to make it clear, that he, to, make it clear to us that he did believe the trinity was from all eternity, and not just because God's activity was from all eternity. But the trinity is actually earlier than any questions of, will I create, will I not create? Okay. Um, but other people, this view is going to come up again in our period, and it never really dies out. Questions? Yeah. What's the term heterodox mean? Right. So orthodox is approved church doctrine. Heresy is disapproved, not church doctrine, masquerading as church doctrine. Heterodox is... Um, Something that is different from approved church doctrine, but not so bad that we have to throw it out. We can, we can let, if you're, if you're heterodox, you can be in the church and you're saved. You, just, you need to be corrected, but we can work through that together in a process. It's not too bad. If you think that heaven is going to be made of blue cheese, you are not a heretic. That doesn't mean that you don't have salvation because you think this crazy thing about heaven. You are, however, heterodox. That's something that we would like to see you re reform your opinion on that matter. <laughs> if you don't, we'll see you in heaven, and no more will need to be said when you see that heaven is not in fact <laughs> But we really think that it would be great if you would just go ahead and address that issue that you have in your thoughts. Not that, not that you couldn't get blue cheese. <laughs> not that heaven might not have excellent blue cheese. If it has blue cheese, it would be the top of the notch blue cheese, but... <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> yes. Yes. But in reality, really, I'm also so happy with this question of how we listen to history that just came up. I was... I've been wondering when this, when this would be able to come up, and, and maybe in fact no one be asked this is a good time. But he was saying this pastorally that when you hear uh, our historians speak of, you know, heretics, you know, I think today, pastorally, I, I hear Christians, and there's this idea that if we can't parse properly the Trinity, I must therefore be going to hell, or right. you're going to hell, or something. And so that very distinction that he just gave is really crucial. Um, if you think about our, our church and our tradition, when we examine someone and admit them to the Lord's table, what are we looking for? We're not looking for whether you can distinguish between eminent or economic uh, you know, you know, views of the Trinity. I suspect there's a lot of people that maybe don't know it, but hold to an economic view. Mm -hmm. Um, I suspect there's a lot of people that, you know, here that would have a view of universality or not universality with respect to Christ that may be Christians, but it's not got a full... So it's really, I love the fact that he just said it, but you, that was really well said, because I think 
be careful. You know, we listen to history, and they they had life and death issues facing them related to some of these distinctions. So that when they would say you're a heretic, you'll hear that and go, Oh my gosh, I think I think that, and maybe I'm going to hell. Um, I think we have to be careful to remember that, that through the tradition, through our history, we part of what's developed over the 2,000 years is trying to distinguish what are the elemental things of faith versus what are things that make for a more mature faith. So even in this church, for instance, uh, you, you might, you, you wouldn't become a teaching elder or a pastor if you held to a, a strictly economic view. But you certainly would be admitted to the Lord's table. Um, you see, that, that's, so that's such a great example to distinguish between what we may call a mature faith, theologically, versus an elemental faith, you know, and I don't think that we're examining our children uh, on half of these issues right. before they can come and become, you know. so very important for you guys to remember throughout this whole course, yeah. you hear the word heretic and you think, that's me, well, they're, they're doing that in a historical sense. And the idea of heresy was, was meant to help you. It's meant to say, this is a heretical idea, therefore you need to move away from it and move in this other direction to come back towards what, what's in line. Um, every time something is heresy, there's something that's at stake. There's something that's going to get lost. If you believe one thing in theology, it will have consequences for other parts of your theology. Yeah, and so, yeah, George. Yeah, that's right. And care about, you know, there's real consequences if you don't have a high view of, of creation. That's right. A very low view of, you know, yeah. real pastoral Yeah. Good and, they're, and they're hearing, you know, people are coming in and they're, or they're hearing about what someone's doing out there. Oh, did you know, Brother So-and-so was, was at the Temple of Mystra last night. And at Mystra, they have sexual orgies. And it's like, oh no, what does he believe that makes him think that it's okay because he's a Christian for him to do that? Right? And you start looking and realize, oh, he doesn't really believe that God cares about the body, and so it doesn't matter what he does with it. You know? And he, you know, he believes in the resurrection, but he doesn't believe in the bodily resurrection, and so he doesn't think that the things he does with his body are going to have any effect on the future. He doesn't see how what great importance God puts on the body, that he's going to raise it up at the last day. We better address that. Right? There's always implications, theological and pastoral. And I personally believe that every theological implication has a pastoral implication. We serve a God who is truth. He is truth as foundationally as he is good. And so it's always going to be better for us to know the truth than not. We will always be more in accord with God, who God is if we know the truth. And so if we're deceived in some fashion at some level, we will do something wrong because of it. We will. What you're going to end up, what you're going to end up doing is you're going to end up believing that the father is. You're going to get to a position called subordinationism, which is to say that the son is not as fully God as the father is, and the same thing for the spirit, because they are they only exist because the father needed to get something done. But if that if if it hadn't been for creation, then they would they wouldn't have had to come into existence. And so yes, the son is God, but in a secondary way compared to the father. So in the creeds when we say that he is um, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, of the same being as the Father, that's not true in the economic trinity. Right. Yeah. I have a friend who wants to start a church, and he believes that Jesus is just a manifestation of God that's all the same person. Yeah. Are there groups, organizations that hold that view, or is this just a... There are, there are, yeah, I mean, we could go, there, there are several denominations that tend towards this, um, and there are historical places where, you know, this sort of traditions that denominations link into, this, this idea stayed alive through the 2000 years of church history. Um, no, that's just him being crazy then, because there's nothing necessary about Pentecostalism that tends towards that view. Um, but the, the good news for him is that he's a part of an ancient tradition. <laughs> <laughs> The bad news is, just because it's old doesn't mean it's good. <laughs> okay, so a little bit, a little bit more positive here today. Here before we're done. Let's
Soteriology. Soteriology is a big word which means, what must I do to be saved? <laughs> okay. Soter is the Greek word for savior. And so this is the study of Christ as savior. So what does Irenaeus believe about salvation? Well, Christ becomes like us to make us like himself. The most often quoted saying of Irenaeus from the beginning of the last part of his big masterwork is the following. Because of his measureless love, he became what we are in order to enable us to become what he is. Don't take this the wrong way. We're not going to become God, right? But we're going to become like God, which is what we were supposed to be from the beginning, which is what we would have been if we hadn't tried to seize being like God for ourselves with fruit. Okay? So Christ is the second Adam. What we lost in Adam, we regain in Christ. Okay. The atonement is begun through incarnation, not crucifixion. Now, a lot of people have said, therefore, it's the incarnation in Irenaeus that saves us and not, and not the cross. That's not true. Okay? Without Christ's blood, there would not have been forgiveness. But the first moment of God's salvation is incarnation in a way that's more important than probably the way most of us think about it. That the incarnation isn't just, well, if he doesn't have a body, he can't die in it. It's more than that. It's, the incarnation is the first moment of God's nature coming near to ours. And when God's nature comes near to you, you will be changed. There's a different idea of how causality works there. The church is going to struggle with this. This is, this, is, this is ultimately determined to be heterodox, but the church is going to struggle with it for the next thousand years, and it's going to be really right on the eve of the Reformation before we decide that we don't really want to go this way. And there will always be people who feel that there's just too much that's being lost by not accepting this. The, the give and take of what you gain and what you lose over this point is just enormous. Um, but it's all within the Orthodox Catholic Little City tradition. Now the exact nature of the atonement in Irenaeus is not clear. There are several ideas present. Um, I bet you have strands of all of these ideas in your thinking. All of these are various orthodox ways of understanding how Christ's work saves us. There are no fewer than eight understandings in the Christian tradition that are orthodox of how Christ's sacrifice on the cross is effective for our sins. So you've got a lot of freedom here. Okay? Um, but a lot of them are probably going to seem really, really similar not having thought about it before. But if you th the more you think about it, the more you see, okay, I see the differences there. All of the following ideas are ideas that Irenaeus seems to have some association with. Ransom theory. Christ's blood was paid as a ransom to the devil to buy us back. Which means Satan owned us, and we had to be ransomed back from Satan. All of these things are founded upon various biblical language, mostly in Paul as well. Reconciliation. We're, we had a big fight with God, and Christ's blood is what allows us to kiss and make up. It is the kissing and making up. It's that which heals the rift between us. Propitiatory. Christ's death appeases God. So here it's not that we had, a, we had a spat with God and we need to make up. Here it's that God is angry. And God needs to receive something. We, God is owed flowers or something because we forgot his anniversary. Right? It's not the same thing as mere reconciliation. There's actually a right that God has to receive from us before he should forgive us. And Christ's blood is that thing that he gets back from us that makes it okay. Sacrifice. Someone performs a sacrifice which is doing to someone else what really ought to be done to you. So God is high priest, the Father is high priest, sacrifices Christ, and then that takes away our sins. He should have sacrificed us. You should have been the one on that cross. But instead, it was Christ, and so now the sacrifice has been made, and now you can live to sin another day. Right. All of those things are working in Irenaeus. And the last thing, and this is, this is definitely... This has been a fun discussion in the history of Christianity. Um, we're not going to get into this probably any more than this discussion right here in this course, um, but um, it's fun. What's called supralapsarianism. Big, big word. We love big words in theology. Um, we're very lonely. But um, this means that this, this refers to the belief that Christ would have become incarnate even if we hadn't sinned, that it was God's original plan for Christ to become incarnate. What underlies this is the idea that the Incarnation bestows blessings on us that are in excess of what blessings we had at creation. They make us like God and bring human nature into union with God in a way that is greater than what would Adam had before the fall. 
And so the argument is, why would God have withheld that from us? Wasn't that maybe always God's idea and always God's plan for us? And so it wasn't that in response to sin, he says, I'm going to fix that and do so much more. It's that in response to sin, he says, I'm going to fix that and return to my original plan. That's the underlying motivation behind all views that prefer superlapsarianism. It was put very well by a particular medieval theologian who said, let's not make the best thing God ever did dependent on the worst thing that we ever did. That's the kind of, if you can see the emotional force of that logic, and you know why a lot of Christians have, been, have gone in that direction. Ultimately, not, not chosen as the majority report of the Christian tradition. Most theologians say what you're probably more familiar with, which is that um, Christ's incarnation was in response to human sin. Um, now, but Irenaeus would say that our sin doesn't determine the coming of Christ. It only determines his coming as Savior. It was always God's plan to unite all things to himself in Christ, and that was always meant to be the consummation of the maturing of humanity, was to be united to God in Christ. Okay? We're pretty much at the end of our time, but time for a few questions before being ridiculous with it. Uh, the, uh, the yeah. So with Irenaeus, would he have stressed a kind of Sociology, or what, could you also have read him a, say, a moral influence, kind of? Both. The, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's union, it, more often than not, it's metaphysical influence as opposed to moral influence. That Christ's nature as God is automatically going to start doing stuff to our nature as humans when you bring them together, right? Like if you put, if I put a flame near something, near, near a metal pot, it will get hot. <laughs> it's just the nature of the two things involved. But there's also a moral influence idea, too, which is that the Christ's example also moves us in God's direction. Yeah. Emily? Quick question back about Gnosticism. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about Jake. So, of the people at the time that were professing to be Christian, mm-hmm. like, how many of them might have been influenced, like, might have also, I don't know, been subject as Gnostic? 150. <laughs> no, we don't know, but it, 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 it must have been, I mean, it was, it was very, very influential because they wrote about it a lot and everybody knew about it and it was a big, big challenge, you can tell from the amount of energy they spent trying to fight it, but that probably meant they were pretty widespread and fairly numerous, but it could have just meant that they were just some really, really influential guys and really high-placed guys who were teaching it. Um, but, um, but, yeah, I mean, these, these books were being read. I mean, when Irenaeus says, oh, as Valentinus says, that famous Gnostic, everyone knows who he's talking about. So the ideas, at least, were really, really well known, even if there weren't a lot of people believing it. We, we just don't really know how many there were. <laughs> yes? Book you gave us about, it was saying that Gnosticism was, like, before Christianity. Yeah. And so it was very widespread. But are you, like, are you basically talking about the death of Yes. Right. I'm talking specifically about the Gnosticism that came out of the encounter with Christianity. Um, Jewish Gnosticism looks a little different. Greek Gnosticism looks a little different. But they all share these fundamental characteristics are going to appear in other forms of Gnosticism as well. Our, our best guess is that this, this is Eastern philosophy that came, you know, that came over from Persia and mixed in with uh, Western thought. And so the things that you're seeing here in the page are probably the things that came from the East. Zoroastrianism has a lot of these characteristics, and we know that Plato got some of this stuff from the East. We know that, um, we know that, um, blah, 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 blah. mathematician. Pythagoras. Pythagoras was deeply influenced by it. Um, so these ideas are coming over. Now, just a little something to take away from you. What happens when the East comes into the West in the first century A.D. happens when the East comes into the West in the 21st century A.D. So when you go to yoga and when you have your Buddhist Christian friends and all of these other kinds of things, look for Gnosticism because it will happen. Yeah. That's right, and an overdue emphasis on the next life, um, to the to the loss of an understanding of the goodness of the flesh. This life is mixed, good and evil. 
Um, but there are human goods in this life. And heaven is not, your conception of heaven can't be bodiless. I mean, bodily resurrection is, is just one of the fundamental, without bodily resurrection, Christianity doesn't work. That's why Paul says, if, if, not even, if Christ was not raised from the dead, we're to be pitied above all men. Right? That's about the body being raised from the dead. His soul didn't die. Souls don't die. Now, did the Jewish Gnostics, were they the ones that uh, were spoken of that didn't believe in the bodily resurrection? Um, were they embraced by the... They, were, they would be included in that, but there, there are mo many, many sects of Judaism didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. I mean, bodily resurrection was the, was the minority report in, in ancient Judaism. Um, this, oh, yeah, it definitely was, definitely was. Um, the um, Jewish Gnosticism probably fed into Jewish mysticism, you know, what was to become Kabbalah, um, which is a, a particularly nasty brand of, of heretical Judaism, um, which gave Christianity some problems as well. Yeah. I think that's, that's good for today. Um, these issues these can go on and on, and they, and they will return. Look out for Gnostics. Don't love them. Let me <laughs> love them, but don't believe them. <laughs> Let me close this in prayer before you get too excited. Father in heaven, we thank you for your church. We thank you for the history of your church and for the ways in which you teach us through it. Father, we thank you for giving us wisdom to understand um, what work you've done, how your spirit has guided us in truth. We pray that you would prepare our minds and hearts for worship, Lord, and give us good fellowship one with another. In Jesus' name, amen.